You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's bow our heads in prayer and pray before we dive into the text for this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we... Well, we just first acknowledge your presence among us already. Lord, during worship this, this morning, it was, was just tangible, your, your presence among us. Your, your word tells us that you inhabit the praises of your people, which means you like live in the praises of your people. So your presence was so thick and tangible as you led us into your presence and thank you for that gift. It's a gift for us to have that. Help us to never forget the gift that you give us as you give us the presence of your spirit. Now we ask God for another gift. We ask that you would give us the gift of illumination, that you would illuminate the text and the passage for us, that you would open the text to our minds, our ears, our eyes, our understanding, our hearts, that you would open our hearts, that you would dig deep into places of our hearts and minds that maybe have been locked away for some time now. We ask God that you would shine your light of illumination there and understanding. And this is something that we know that your spirit does as he leads us to the truth, which is in Christ. And finally, Lord God, we ask that we ask that you would just speak to us in those places. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen, amen. amen. Well, five years ago, my wife and I and our kids, uh, we spent uh, a summer uh, praying through a decision. Anybody here ever spend a ton of time praying over a decision to either do X, Y, or Z? We spend an entire summer as a family. Um, one of the things our family does every summer is take a family vacation. And during that vacation, prior to and on the back end of, we spent a ton of time praying through a decision to answer a call to plant this church here. And so what happened then is in August of 2012, uh, we sensed, my wife and I and our kids, we sensed that God was calling us to do that. We were trying to count the cost of what it would be like for our family to invest in this way. And, uh, and we just sensed the Lord's call very clearly that this is what he was calling us to do. And so then in August of 2012, what we began to do is we began to gather with four other adults and I think three other kids um, in our living room. And, uh, and, and what we did is we just began to meet weekly um, with one another, uh, sharing life together praying for each other, uh, studying God's word and discovering what God's word would say to us. Um, and by God's grace, the reality is that those early meetings in our living room became basically the launching point for, for, for this church that we're all a part of today, right? Um, this church gathering you sit in today, that, this is, that was the launching point for that. Many of you became part of the well um, out of those earlier meetings. And, um, um, and that, that was all by God's grace. It became the launching point basically for, um, for a mission and a vision that we have kind of tried to flesh out over the last uh, five years now. Um, and today what we're doing is planting a church. And what do we say? We say that we're planting a church that seeks to be a gospel-centered church family, right? Gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. What changed? Anybody catch it? Missionally, right? Let me say it again. Um, what we're doing is planting a church that seeks to be a gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. Three words, right? Gospel. Family. 
Mission. I gave it to you. So let's see if we can all do it together without me giving the answers away. What's the first one? And the second one? And the third one? Good job. Good job. You guys awesome. Give each other a round of applause. Do that. Do that now. Like, look at somebody next to you. Give them a pat on the back really fast. If you want to, you can give them a kiss if that seems appropriate to you. Um, <laughs> three words, right? Gospel, family, mission. Those three words are basically the summary of our mission statement here as we plant the well. This is what you all are a part of. And if you just walked in this morning, you're just a visitor and you're like, I'm not even a member of the well. I'm just here. Well, you, you by God's grace just walked into a church whose mission is this. And that therefore then makes you a part of that mission in some regard or another. And that, that mission and vision that we've just communicated uh, is rooted and, and it's inspired by what we see God doing in and through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, as well as uh, throughout the early church in the book of Acts. And, and, and so our plan then over the summertime here uh, is to devote six weeks. Everybody say six weeks. Six weeks. <laughs> Just keep you guys engaged this morning. Six weeks. We're going to devote six weeks over the summer of preaching through our mission and our vision statement. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to anchor that mission and vision statement to two passages only. Um, not meaning that we're not still going to kind of reference others. But we really want to anchor to two passages and just drill deep into those. Because these two passages are passages that we feel God has used significantly throughout the life of uh, the, the family at the well. Uh, and, so, and so this week, uh, and for the first three weeks, we're going to spend examining Acts 2, 42 through 47. That'll be the first three weeks uh, as we examine the work of God in and through the early church. Uh, and then uh, we'll take a break as, as our family has gone through July. And when we come back in, then the first three weeks of August will be the second three weeks of this six-week series. Are you tracking with me? Okay, good, good. You guys are awesome. You guys are awesome. Uh, then what we'll do is we'll resume that series and, and finish up that last three weeks in August by diving into Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. So that's, that's kind of where we're headed. That's the reason we're doing this. Uh, and and, and I'm, we're just praying that God really produces a ton of fruit in the people of the well as we examine the people of the early church and the people that Jesus interacted with. We're praying that those three roads would intersect together to help us live more robustly into uh, the mission and the vision of, of the well. So, so this week what we're going to do is we're going to study Acts 2, 42 through 47, uh, and we're going to focus on, specifically on verses 42 through 45, and we're going to ask, we're going to ask this question, what does it look like to be a gospel-centered church family? It's the first kind of half or third. It's the first third of our mission statement. It's, it's the question that, um, that I want us to ask as we look at this passage. What does it look like to be a gospel-centered church family? Or better yet, what does it look like to be a people that are part of a gospel-centered church family? So look at Acts 2, 42 through 47 with me. Let me read. Luke says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The final words of this passage have haunted me for years. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, which seems appropriate to me since we just ended our study in the gospel of Luke. 
as he uh, records this passage of Scripture, uh, what he writes directly follows the day of Pentecost. So if you go back to the Gospel of Luke and on the one hand and the book of Acts on the other, you basically have Luke's Gospel Part 1 of what Jesus came and did and ministered while on earth. And then Jesus ascends, right? He lives, he dies, he resurrects. He speaks, he ascends back to heaven, and then leaves behind this ragtag group of people who are an absolute wreck and a mess. They've been the last people that any of us would have chosen for the position of planting a church. I guarantee you these guys did not appear to be the star athletes that you would look for, right? Or the most influential people you would want to be on your core team, or the most gifted or talented for that matter, or even the most spiritual. I mean, if you, if you just think about this group of disciples that Jesus leaves behind, um, and then what we see in the book of Acts is we see Luke's gospel part two, basically, and what we see is we see now the work of the Holy Spirit through that early group of believers in the early church. And uh, what, what Luke writes here in this passage directly follows the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Jesus' disciples, and they were empowered to give a powerful witness through their preaching and speaking in tongues, and through their interpretation of that, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And the results of that were, what, 3,000 people get saved. Now just stop and think about this for a minute. 3,000 people get saved. Look around the room here, roughly 40, 45 people in here, not counting kids. Um, 3,000 people. I mean, when Jesus left and ascended to heaven at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and then when we pick up the book of Acts, there's roughly 120 believers. So roughly three times what we have in this room. That, that's... That's the people that are gathered in the upper room praying for the Holy Spirit, 120. And the church multiplies in one day from 120 people to 3,000. That's an administrative discipleship nightmare in my mind. But it's also a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because this is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in saving people. And so it is this massive group of believers that Luke is writing about in our text. That's put that thinking cap on in your mind. This is who Luke is talking about. And what he describes here uh, is probably arguably the most well-worn passage in all of Scripture in regards to illustrating or painting the picture of what the church should be and should do. You hear it all the time. Christians will say things like, man, we just want to be an Acts 2 church. We want to get back to being like Acts 2. This is what they're re referring to. This passage, uh, as well as Acts chapter 4, I would argue, uh, are probably the most largely used passages of Scripture uh, for us. And what Luke describes in this passage of Scripture, if you want to make this note so you can track through the outline of what uh, I'm about to preach uh, among us, as he describes the people of the early church as being devoted, awestruck, unified, and generous. Devoted, awestruck, unified, and generous. Acts is largely a, a descriptive book. It is not a prescriptive book. So hear that. Hear, hear that well, that Acts primarily is descriptive of what the early church looked like as the Holy Spirit did his work in and through this body of believers. It is not primarily a prescriptive book where we must say, oh, well, because they did it that way, we must do it the exact same way. Um, and yet, as God describes the early church, we can look at that and we can say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we were described the same way? Devoted, awestruck, unified, generous. Do those four words describe us as a church family? Ask that personally for a second. Do these four words describe you as a believer? Are you devoted, committed, wholeheartedly engaged? Are you struck with awe? Are you unified? 
generous. Those four words describe you and your life. And then coming out of that, does that, those words describe us as a church family? Number one, the people of the well, <laughs> we want the people of the well to be devoted. And the people of the early church were highly devoted. Verse 42, man, these early believers, man, they, they weren't nominal Christians. They weren't nominal Christians who showed up in church gatherings every other couple weeks. They weren't spectators in an audience. And though they had been victimized and abused and, and marginalized in many different ways, man, like I think these guys refused to become passive victims. Instead, like these early believers in, in the early church, man, they, they were devoted. They were committed. They were engaged participants in the work of the gospel. They, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They, they were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to breaking bread. They were devoted to prayer. Think about what it means to be devoted to something. Think about what it means for you to be 100% all-in committed to something or somebody or a cause. And the people of the early church were devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? One commentator says that for us to be devoted to the teaching of the apostles, we must adhere or stick to or glue ourselves to the authority of the Bible, of the Old Testament and New Testaments. The church, he says, is a fellowship where the Bible is loved, read, studied, and obeyed. It's kind of funny. I, that last one, obeyed, is usually the one that gets kind of cut off, right? Uh, we love to talk about, um, oh, I love God's word. I can chapter and verse that. Bingo, bango, done, right? Sucks to be you. You can't chapter and verse as good as I do. We love that. Um, we love to talk about reading the scriptures. Um, even Christians, as we mature and become five years old or more, um, we love to study the scriptures together. But obedience to the scriptures, now that sounds a little too much like legalism, and I really believe in God's grace. Right? Everybody ever hear that phrase? And guess what? <laughs> Here's the truth. When you cut off obedience to the scriptures, you know what you do to grace? You castrate it. You take the power of grace away. The power of grace away. This commentator says the church is to be a fellowship where the Bible is loved, read, studied, and obeyed. Like the Bereans uh, in Acts 17.11, we are to search the scriptures daily. This is why the church should emphasize Bible study and biblical preaching. And so for us to be a gospel-centered church family, then for us as the people of the well, we need to be a people who are devoted to the preaching of the word of God. See, this 45 to 55 to an hour and five minutes that we spend together on Sunday mornings and the time that we spend together in gospel community, uh, it's not just a, a time where we just go, man, can the guy get this thing over with? This is a time when we devote ourselves to the hearing of the preaching of the word of God because let's face it, we get preached at all day long, all week long by a thousand other messages so, so what do you think Satan would want to attack first? The opportunity for you to hear the word of God preached to you. So for us, it's important that we are devoted to the preaching of the word of God. B, and the people of the early church, they were devoted to fellowship. Well, another commentator says this about fellowship. He says, few Bible words have suffered more distortion than the word fellowship. Wrestle with that for a second in your own mind. I'll read it again. I want you to wrestle with this. Few Bible words have suffered more distortion than the word fellowship. Think about the ways that you distort the word fellowship and maybe the ways that you don't know yet that you distort the word fellowship and maybe God's about ready to confront you in these moments for the ways that you have distorted the word fellowship. Listen to what this commentator says. We commonly reduce fellowship to chatter and cookies in the church hall. Ouch. Anybody feel like you just got stuck with a knife? Thinking that this is what the New Testament had in mind. And then again, 
usually these same folks, this is probably every one of us in this room at times, okay? People who are detractors from doctrine uh, will oftentimes chime in unison. It's not doctrine that we need, but we need fellowship. As though being a Christian were about holding hands and humming in the key of B flat. He also says that he doesn't believe that the New Testament author um, had in mind campfires, s'mores, and a rendition or two or ten, for that matter, of the latest equivalent of Kumbaya. (laughs) So I felt like it was just important to use this commentator's own words because I felt like he just said it better than I did. He continues this way. In New Testament times, the word fellowship is meant this. It's a Greek word, and it means to share in common with. So think about this for a minute, to share in common with, to share something in common with others. In this passage, it's employed in a number of contexts that would help us to get a better understanding of what is implied. Uh, Believers are called into the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 9. This this means that we share together in a common identity and relationship. See, that has nothing to do with church cookies and chatter, does it? has everything to do with the relationship and identity. Isn't isn't it interesting that the temptation for us to distort the word fellowship would be for us to somehow get it all about the fact that we get to sit in the backyard, smoke some cigars, drink a beer, eat some food, right? Those are all seemingly great pieces of fellowship. But if that becomes our identity, then we miss the biblical use of the word fellowship which simply was that we would share in the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's our identity. There's power in that. There's no power in the other. We share together in a common identity and relationship with Jesus Christ. Similarly, another place that we could look to unpack this word fellowship is the apostolic benediction, which highlights the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we have the fellowship of our identity in Christ, as well as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You look at 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you'll see it there. Again, we begin to find our fulfillment of the word fellowship anywhere other than the biblical definition of the word fellowship, and we begin to castrate the word and take away the power. We begin to rely on false power. If we discontinue relying on fellowship with the Holy Spirit, who are we fellowshipping with at that point? Begin to rely on man's power to hold things together or to make things happen. Uh, Also, the Apostle Paul speaks of a fellowship between himself and the Philippians. You read the book of Philippians, you see the Apostle Paul speaking of fellowship between himself and them in the work of the gospel. So here's another place that we have fellowship, okay, is in the work of the gospel. The message of the gospel being that God created you and I in his image, that sin came and broke that because of the temptation of of Satan. So you you have Satan and you have the flesh and you have you have sin right this this triune uh, like war against us right God comes sends his son because he loves us so much to make war against that triune enemy of ours and then gives us faith awakens our hearts to hear from him we believe and now we're set free from our bondage to follow God um, wholeheartedly completely obedient Uh, This is the gospel. We have fellowship in that. Why would we want to trade the fellowship in these things, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the gospel? Why would we want to trade fellowship in those three things for any false substitute? Why? Smoke, lights, mirrors, falseness, fakeness. Why would we want to trade the real thing for something fake that has no power. So the Apostle Paul uses that word fellowship that way. Um, The word fellowship for us should really be a signal to our common participation 
in Christ and the sense of unity that it entails. See, the, the glue that holds the brick and the mortar of the building together, which is the church. The church is like a building, but it's not the building. I don't give a rip what building or room you meet in, right? The glue that holds the bricks together is Jesus. That's the fellowship we have. And you and I are the bricks in that building. Though cracked as we are and imperfect as we are and misshapen and missized as we are and different colored as we are and coming from all different parts of the world as we are. Christ is the one that glues us as bricks together into that beautiful building that many in the community around us would see. So for us to be a gospel-centered church family, the people of the well have got to be a people who are devoted to gospel-centered fellowship, not a fake or false representation of it. And then see the people of the early church, as we look at this text, they were devoted to breaking bread. Many scholars take the phrases, the breaking of bread in verse 22 and breaking bread in verse 46 to mean that the early believers were devoted to practicing both the Lord's Supper on the one hand, as well as community meals together on the other. And it's just simply because of the article, the. Um, it's the only thing that really changes it. Uh, so the argument is either or, or both and. And I, I'm going to land on both and just simply because all throughout the scriptures, you see both and. Um, both the Lord's Supper and celebrating community meals together. But the problem, as I stated just a little bit ago, is that we oftentimes want to elevate the fellowship meal over the Lord's Supper. Think about the atrocity and the, and, and the, and the heresy of this. Think about this. And, and let this settle on us for a minute. Because I think we need to hear this. Think about the heresy and the atrocity of us doing that. Of making the shared meal together in the backyard more important. More valued than sharing in the Lord's Supper together. Especially since we know what the Lord's Supper is designed for. This representation, this reminder of what Christ did for you. And let me just say that I think in the church today, and I think in us today, even in our church right here, I think we need to let the Lord do business inside of us on this issue. Like I just want to say, you and I should be so excited to, to be together on Sundays, to have that privilege and that opportunity to be together on a Sunday like this and to share in the Lord's Supper. We should be more excited and committed to that, I believe, than our commitment to just sharing a common meal. Because the common meal does not point back to the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. So I think the truth of this passage is that these early believers uh, practiced a wholehearted devotion and a consistent commitment to both the Lord's Supper and community meals. So for us, my heart for us as a shepherd and a pastor is to, is to press us forward, is for us to be a gospel-centered church family, right? And for us to move there, I believe that one of the pieces for us to grow up in is to continue growing and becoming a people who are devoted to breaking bread together at the communion table here, as we do every week at the end of preaching, to apply the preached word to our hearts. It's not only to do that, um, but it's to also break bread around the dinner table um, as we share life together in the gospel on a regular basis. These opportunities are provided for us as a church family. Our gospel communities are designed for people to share life together, to pray for one another, and to discover what God's word says. And in the context of gospel community uh, throughout the week, it is our hope and our desire that people would break bread together, whether that be a pizza or a cup of coffee or a full meal. It would be our desire that every gospel community would do that often. And then on Sundays every week, you would have the opportunity to come and to break bread together as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that we would also provide that opportunity on a Sunday morning once a quarter. This is why we have those family feasts. Our hope as a church family is to provide these opportunities and set up the opportunity, the framework for us as a family to do life this way. So the opportunity is there for us. The hope is that we continue growing in that. 
And then look at D. D, the people of the early church were devoted to prayer, right? Again, one scholar says that early believers were not content merely to talk to each other. Stop for a second and listen to that. The early believers were not content merely to talk to each other. They also talked with Jesus. What can account for the remarkable success of the early church other than prayer? There was a great deal of it in Acts. Luke himself came from a church that spent time in prayer. They sent out missionaries in fulfillment of the Great Commission. No doubt he learned from them the priorities that he should assign to the story of the church as he wrote this. When Luke records the story of Jesus in his gospel, it is Jesus' prayers that he draws attention to at the start of Jesus' ministry in chapter 3, before his healings in chapter 5, before choosing the 12 in chapter 6, before the transfiguration in chapter 9. And according to Luke, Jesus even dies with a prayer on his lips in chapter 23. For Luke, prayer becomes the mark of a true disciple. Hardly anything is more important as a sign of the church's vitality than its commitment to prayer. So for us, for us to be a gospel-centered church family, man, and my hope, my prayer, my call to us today is that, is that we must continue to grow and mature and become a people who are devoted to the regular practice of praying together. So summarizing point one regarding devotion, the early believers weren't nominal Christians. They weren't, they weren't halfway in. They were all in. The early believers weren't people who were just kind of sitting on a fence, like, ah, I think I'm there, but I don't know. They weren't nominal Christians who show up in church gatherings every other couple of weeks. They weren't spectators in the audience. They had been victimized, they had been abused, they had been marginalized, they had faced horrifying things in many different ways, and yet they refused to become passive victims. Instead, these early believers were devoted, they were committed, they were engaged participants in the work of the gospel, man. They, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, they were devoted to breaking bread, they were devoted to prayer. Prayer. So for us, that's who I would call us to be. It's the people who are devoted. Uh, number two, moving quickly through the rest of this, the people of the early church were awestruck, verse 43, right? What causes enemies of Christ to become followers of Christ? Think about that for a second. What causes an enemy of Christ to become a follower of Christ? What causes a cowardly man like the apostle Peter to turn from denying Christ one day on the day of the crucifixion to them proclaiming Christ powerfully on the day of Pentecost 50 days later where 3,000 souls were added to the church. I believe the Holy Spirit is a huge key to that. Being the Holy Spirit comes and resides inside of us and gives us dynamite, dynamic power while we run around chasing firecrackers. But one scholar says that the key is found in verse 43 in this phrase, fear or awe came upon every soul. A joyful, trembling sense of awe. That's not our experience. He says that. That's not our experience. Today, today, for most people, including most professing Christians, God is an idea to talk about or an inference from an argument or a family tradition to be preserved. Yet for a very few, for a very few, God is a stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, and shocking present reality. Where are the churches of whom Luke could say today, fear, awe, trembling is upon every soul? Where are those churches? The absence of this fear or awe has a direct effect on the way that we accumulate possessions for ourselves, the way we ignore the needy, the way we trivialize fellowship, and the way we play more than we pray. Can it be said of you, can it be said of you that your soul trembles in awestruck fixation upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or has Christianity become to you something else? For us to be a gospel-centered church family, the people of the well must become and continue to mature and grow up 
into people who are fixated on the awesomeness of God and his work in and through the family of the church. Number three, three, the people of the early church were unified and generous. Luke tells us that all who believed together, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One scholar says this, it says that the word common comes from the same word group as fellowship. See, what the first Christians shared together by faith in Jesus Christ, namely the forgiveness of sins, is what they shared together. Forgiveness of all sin. This is a very generous thing that God does for us, forgives us of our sin. How generous is our God to forgive us of every sin? Think about this. What the early church shared together in terms of God's generosity being poured out upon them, then led them to live out a life that was generous to share with others. There was, there was no expectation in their sharing that when I share, somebody else will share as much as I do. I'm preaching this to myself. There was no expectation in that. There was no, I want to out-trump and out-give someone else. It was just simply that they had already shared in this together as a church, as a group of people. And therefore, that vertical relationship between them and their Savior, receiving this generous gift of forgiveness for sin, that then motivated and empowered those believers to live the same way. There wasn't anybody that was showing up to the potluck in this passage that was like, I'm afraid there's not going to be enough food. Nobody was even worried about that. Why? Because they were trusting that God who was so generous to pour out forgiveness upon them would also be generous enough to help them to give enough. This is the identity that these early believers lived out. They were able to share with each other their material possessions. Something that would emerge again in Luke's portrait of the early church in Acts 4, where Luke says this, says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And again in Acts 2.46, as we read here, they were united of one mind as they met each day in the temple courts and gathered together to eat in each other's homes. The same scholar, he says this too, he says, the early church members felt a sense of responsibility toward one another. Think about that. Here's what these early church members didn't do. They didn't take the summers off. I say that in some regard for myself as I get to take off July. This is a crazy privilege for me to be able to do that. Not a lot of pastors get to take their families and bail for the summer. Do you know how many church members do that, though? Every summer? Like, sorry, I'm out. Ain't serving this summer. Ain't giving anymore because I'm too busy paying for my trips and whatever else I'm doing, right? Like, like we, we have turned the church into a spectatorship. So I feel... Totally blessed, totally humbled. But I think this also has to be a word for us that these guys weren't taking breaks, man. They were resting in Christ. And they felt a sense of responsibility towards one another because they were part of the same family. That's a, that's a sense of responsibility that needs to be shared across the board. There are things that all of you do that will not happen if you don't do it. Simple things, right? iPod getting plugged in. If you don't plug that iPod in on Sunday morning, who do you think is going to do it, right? Sending out monthly letters. Who's going to do that if you don't do that, right? Setting up the tables here on Sunday. Who's going to do that if you don't do it? Nursery, babies, back. Who's going to do that if you don't do it? If you don't feel a sense of responsibility to your brothers and sisters who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who do you feel a sense of responsibility to? If, if you don't make coffee, who's going to do that? If you don't set up a sound system, who's going to do that? If you don't MC and share passage of scripture, who's going to do that? If you don't lead us in worship, who's going to do that? This is a family responsibility for brothers and sisters of Christ. If, if you don't stand back there by that door and greet new people when they come, do you think they're going to feel welcome? And if you don't do it, who's going to do it? That, that's the kind of responsibility that I want us to grow up into to mature into. I think it's what we see in this 
passage, man. They were members of the same family. They shared a, a common sense of identity. There was a powerful witness to the, to the people of Jerusalem all about them. Everyone all about them. They, man, they were living in broken families. The society and community was just as broken there as it is today. And Jerusalem, the community around them, saw their sense of family. And they were like, holy crap, I want some of that. Why do you think people were coming to Jesus every single day? It's the Lord who adds, but it's the church that lives it. And the church that doesn't live it, God does not add to. Follow me? But for us to be a gospel-centered church family, the people of the well have got to become people who are unified and generous. How does this help us? I want to wrap this up in just a couple of minutes and get us out of here. As we look at this passage, we see these people that are devoted, awestruck, unified, generous. They're a gospel-centered church family, agreed? A gospel-centered church family, that's what we see here. It's great to know. It's even greater to do. In my paraphrase words of James, it's, it's great to hear all about what you know about what it means to be a Christian who has trusted in Christ. But let me, let me prove to you that I know Christ by putting my faith into action so that you can see it in my lifestyle. So the question for you and I should be this. How does our understanding or our knowledge of this text help us to live differently in the city of Hastings? How do we, the people of the well, actually begin to live differently throughout the city of Hastings to the extent that it makes an actual difference that can be seen 20 years from now? How can we practice being a gospel-centered church family? Let me propose three things. Number one, be devoted to the word of God, fellowship, meals, and prayer. For us to be a gospel-centered church family, I believe that the people of the well must be people who are devoted to the Word of God, devoted to gospel-centered fellowship, devoted to breaking bread together at the communion table, devoted to sharing life together at the dinner table, and I believe that we must also be devoted to the regular practice of praying together. How are you going to do that, though? Um, my encouragement for us would be to consistently commit yourself, devote yourself to God's word, to fellowship, to meals, to prayer. Just simply do it, right? Um, we have tried to make this easy for us in our church family. The, the best pathways that we can lay out for you to walk down, the best doors we can open and say, walk down that hallway and you will get to that room where you are devoted to these things um, are, are really twofold. Sunday gatherings, gospel communities. Do those. Because in those gatherings as a community of people, that's where we practice these things. Um, so, so those are some pathways we would uh, encourage you down. Uh, church membership courses. I know there's some of you that are getting ready to do that. <coughs> Porterbrook. We do Porterbrook. Porterbrook, we, we do the same thing there. We always share stuff together out of the scriptures. We always challenge one another out of the scriptures. We do lots of in-depth study. We always eat food, and we always pray for each other. Share, pray, discover together, right? Um, so this is a place where you could do that as well. Get into Porterbrook and stick with it. Uh, find a place of ministry to serve in. Like, don't stay on your thumbs anymore. <clears throat> Be one of those people who is participating and investing rather than taking and consuming. Move from consumer to contributor. Make a contribution with yourself. Begin to see yourself as a gift to give away. It's not just your money. It's also your time. And it's also your talent that we want to see people giving away. So do that. Consistent commitment to those things, I think, uh, will help us become devoted to the Word of God, fellowship, meals, and prayer. Number two, fixate your heart and your mind on the awesomeness of God. For us to be a gospel-centered church family, the people of the well, I believe, must be a people who are fixated on the awesomeness of God. Fixate on the awesomeness of God and His work in and through the family of the church. How do you put that into action? Uh, to be fixated is to be glued or to be stuck to something. Think about that analogy. Be glued to or stuck to something. You know what I know that a lot of people are glued to or stuck to? What do you think my answer is going to be? Cell phone. Cell phone. Cell phone. I love the fact that we can have the Bible on our cell phones in church. It's good. The problem is, is 
a lot of times I can tell by the look on people's faces that they're not even looking at their Bible. They're playing on Facebook. And then I see the posts in my Facebook feed when I get home. It's like, oh, I'm going to share this stupid thing. And I could be hearing the priest's word of God, but I've, I'm busy doing this. And it's got nothing to do with it. It's like, oh, hello. I know what you were doing because I was standing in front of everybody and I see everybody's faces. So I know who is here. And then I see Facebook later. I'm like, crap, man. So now you compete with Facebook, right? So at, at any rate, bunny trail gone. Glued to our cell phones, right? Glued to our TVs. There are lots of things we get glued to. <laughs> lots of things. The encouragement of this text is to be glued to or fixated upon the awesomeness of God. There are barriers, right? Facebook, cell phones, TVs. Um, but think about the other barriers that you get, you glue yourself to. You attach yourself to seeking life from them, right? This is the good life place. It's Nebraska. We want the good life. According to some heretics, we want it now and should have it now. Possessions, careers, relationships, social status, sex, pleasure, hobbies, comfort. That's a whole host of things that we can glue ourselves to. They can become barriers to fixating our hearts and our minds on the awesomeness of God and how good he is and how powerful he is. Think about, think about just one of the best movies you've seen recently. I know some of you last night went out and saw Wonder Woman. Awesome movie, right? That's why this song, Our God is an Awesome God, is such an awesome song. Um, think about God in those terms. When was the last time you thought about God the way you thought about that movie last night? Or that guy the day before, or that girl the day before that, right? God is awesome. Would you fixate yourself to him? Or would you continue to fixate yourself to something else that becomes a barrier? It could be helpful to take up a journal where you record the awesome things that you see God doing in your life and in the life of the church family around you, or practice sharing stories with others in gospel community, which means you have to be in gospel community of what the Lord is up to in your life. Um, our gospel communities, I keep pushing that because it's part of the lifeblood of our church. Our gospel communities are actually designed out of this uh, common belief and value that we need to fixate our hearts and our minds on the awesomeness of God through the regular practice and the rhythm of sharing life together, praying for one another, and discovering what God says in his word together. <clears throat> So, so fixate your glue or, or stick your heart and your mind on the awesomeness of God by doing these things. Finally, number three, final piece before we summarize and wrap up. Number three, fight for unity and be generous. Fight for unity and be generous. For us to be a gospel-centered church family, I believe that the people of the well must be a people who are unified and generous. But how do you put that into action? I want you to think about fighting for something this way. Uh, to fight for something is to make something a priority. That would be one way of thinking about how to fight for something, right? Uh, you think about this in marriages or relationships or friendships. When a fight breaks out and everybody starts getting all cat and mouse on each other crazy, it's because you're what? You're fighting for something you hold dear. This is my priority versus your priority. We're going to fight about it, right? Just get that picture in your head. That, it should not be that way. We up fighting for things that cause disunity and division. Uh, but we should fight for things that would unify us, and that would be to make the main thing the main thing rather than the minor things the main thing. Go back and think about that. Fight for something is to make that something a priority. Do you fight for main things or do you fight for minor things? If, if minor things are a priority in your life, guess what's happening to the main things in your life? If you fight for the minor things like, I gotta have this relationship, I gotta have this much money, I gotta have sex with somebody, I gotta have comfort, I gotta be loved. If you fight for the minor things, guess what happens to the main things like the presence of God or the practice of prayer, right? If you fight for the minor things, the main things get sacrificed. So start fighting for the main things, what actually unites us, rather than fighting for the minor things which divide us. The whole world around us does really good at fighting for minor things and causing division. We are to be a picture of unity. 
So fight for it. Fight for what you prioritize. Actually, here's the deal. You will already fight for what you prioritize. So underneath the thing, beneath the thing, beneath the thing, start asking God to help you prioritize what God prioritizes. Make God-honoring relationships a priority. Make it a priority. And guess what? In your life, God-honoring relationships will start to be produced as fruit of the fact and the truth that God-honoring relationships are the priority for you. Make it a priority to let the small things slide. Make it a priority to live together in humility. Make it a priority to serve others before serving yourself. Make it a priority to contribute rather than to consume. Make it a priority to increase your financial giving this year. Make it a priority to give this year, period. That would be increasing your financial giving for some of you. Make it a priority to serve in an area of ministry consistently rather than just showing up whenever you want to. Showing up on time. Prepping before you show up to minister. Can you guys imagine if I showed up one week and didn't have any sermon prepared? How irresponsible would that be? Have I ever done that? Never. Why? I, I, I sense a real deep responsibility to you guys. And, and what I do with God's word is just as important as serving coffee or counting heads or greeting people or playing music or setting up stuff. It's all very important, right? So I, what I would ask you guys to do is to, to walk the same way you've seen me walk. Walk the same way that you see others among us walking. Make it a priority to be a contributor rather than a consumer. Make it a priority to increase your financial giving. Serve in an area of ministry consistently. Make Jesus the center of your conversations with one another. And these are just some of the things I think that we could all do to grow up and to mature into a church of people who are becoming a gospel-centered church family. That's the call for us. That's the call of our mission and our vision on our church family is to become a gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. Those three words, gospel, family, mission. We don't just throw those words out because we think they're cool buzzwords. We throw them out because we want us to live into those. And that's what this series about being the people of the well is all about. It's designed to help us grow into that mission and that vision. And this will happen for us. We will become this kind of people by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit as we, we, the people that call the well our church home, devote ourselves to God's word, devote ourselves to fellowship, devote ourselves to meals together, devote ourselves to prayer, as we fixate our hearts and our minds on the awesomeness of God rather than the cheapness of substitutes, and as we fight for unity and as we practice being generous. This is how I believe that we, the people of the well, would become a gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow missionally engaged disciples who glorify God. Are you in or are you out? Are you halfway in or are you all the way in? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Again, for the privilege that it is to, uh, to be with your church, to preach and to teach and to hear from you as your spirit illuminates the word to us. God, I pray that you would take this message, apply it to our hearts and our lives. And as we enter into a time of communion, Lord God, I pray that you would just continue to apply the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus to us as a church family. Help us to respond to this word in these moments, in repentance and in confession, and by turning in faith back to you, because you are not a substitute. You're the real deal, and you're the one that we need. So we just beg you to do that work in us in these final few moments. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.